Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet, bringing the world's top experts right to you. Introducing your hosts, Matt Bodner and Austin Fable. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet, with more than 5 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. In this episode, we bring mental toughness expert Amy Morin onto the show to discuss how to help yourself and your family be mentally strong. Are you a fan of the show and have you been enjoying the content that we put together for you? If you have, I would love it if you signed up for our email list. We have some amazing content on there along with a really great free course that we put a ton of time into called How to Create Time for What Matters Most in Your Life. If that sounds exciting and interesting and you want a bunch of other free goodies and giveaways along with that, just go to successpodcast.com. You can sign up right on the homepage. That's successpodcast.com. Or if you're on your phone right now, all you have to do is text the word smarter. That's S-M-A-R-T-E-R to the number 44222. In our previous episode, we brought back renowned guest Greg McCune for an amazing discussion of how to make your life effortless and focus on what really matters. Now for our interview with Amy. Amy Morin is the editor-in-chief at Very Well Mind, a licensed clinical social worker, psychotherapist, and psychology lecturer at Northeastern University. She's also an international best-selling author. Her books include 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do, 13 Things Mentally Strong Parents Don't Do, and 13 Things Mentally Strong Women Don't Do. The Guardian dubbed her the self-help guru of the moment, and Forbes called her a thought leadership star. Her TEDx talk, the Secret to Becoming Mentally Strong is one of the most popular talks of all time with more than 15 million views. She's been featured on CNN, Oprah, Time, and many media outlets across the globe. Amy, welcome to the Science of Success. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Matt. Well, we're really excited to have you on here. I've been a fan of your work for a long time, and, and, and I love the, the recent tack that you've taken more towards uh, parenting and, and children, especially as a relatively recent it's been a couple of years but but father of, of two children it's great to see and and encounter resources that are geared towards 
parenting, but also with a with a bent towards evidence and psychology and, and research as well. Yeah, my books have really stemmed from what my readers have asked. And after my first book came out for adults, I had so many parents that said, how do I teach this to my kids? Or if only my life could have been different had I learned these things sooner. So that led to my parenting book. And now years later, I'm finally writing a book for kids to be able to say it's a resource that you can give to your kids that they can learn mental health exercises in a, in a fun way too, and in a kid-friendly language. And there's so many opportunities to teach kids, especially right now, about how to build mental strength. So I'm excited to get this book out into the world. So before we jump into some of the, the tactics and, and strategies and, and some of the specifics, I'd love to zoom out and, and get a sense from you as somebody who's, who's written and, and researched so much about this. How do you think about what mental strength is? Glad you asked that. We just did a survey where we asked people and reading the answers was fascinating to see the wide range of what people viewed mental strength as. Everything from it's the same thing as resilience to it's your ability to solve problems. Really interesting. The way that I define it is that there's three parts to it. The way you think, the way you feel, and the way you behave. And when we talk about thoughts, it's not about being overly positive or assuming everything will turn out right. That's not really helpful either. Instead, it's more about thinking realistically and thinking I can handle this even if it doesn't turn out the way that I want. And then the emotional part is knowing that you don't have to be happy all the time, that you can tolerate being sad, that you can tolerate being upset and angry and embarrassed. But you also don't have to stay stuck there, that you have some skills and tools and strategies to manage those emotions in a healthy way. And then the third part is about your behavior. How do you choose to act? What do you do when you struggle with motivation? What steps do you take to your goals, even on the days when you don't like it? And then combine those three things, we've got mental strength. I love those three pillars. And, and on the emotional side, especially the, the topic or the theme of tolerating sadness, tolerating negative emotions is such a, a vital skill set and such a cornerstone of not only emotional intelligence, but really just living a healthy and productive life. It is. And we talk so much about emotional intelligence and how to interpret other people's feelings and those sorts of things. But I would argue we're a long way from that. And I'll stand in front of a room full of executives giving a talk. And these are educated people who are doing really well in life. And I'll say, I'll give you 30 seconds to write down as many feeling words as you can. And at the end of 30 seconds, they usually have an average of five words that they came up with. Happy, sad, mad. And once we get beyond those, it's a lot harder to think of it because we spend such little time paying attention to our emotions. And there's a lot of research behind the fact that if you just name your emotions, it takes a lot of the sting out of them. So being able to say, I'm anxious, makes you feel a little bit less anxious. Or being able to say, I'm really sad right now, can help you feel a little bit better. So I really always advocate for people to learn, how do you label your emotions? How do you put a name to what you're feeling? And it's tough. And sometimes feeling things that almost feel contradictory. You can be happy that you're going to take on a new job, yet still sad that you're going to miss your old job. But you can have more than one feeling at once. And just figuring out, okay, how am I feeling right now? And is this emotion serving me well? There's an exercise in my kid's book, but it's an exercise I often do with adults that says, ask yourself, is the emotion I'm having right now a friend or an enemy? We tend to talk about emotions as if they're either positive or negative. Like we say, happiness is a good emotion, it's positive, but sadness is a bad emotion. 
But that's not true, that any emotion has the ability to, to be helpful sometimes, but it also has the ability to be hurtful, for example. The reason why really smart people sometimes fall prey to a rich-quick scheme, they were so excited about it that it clouded their judgment and they overlooked the risks that they were facing. They underestimated the possibility that they might fail. Or when we look at something like sadness, we think, oh, sadness is a bad emotion. But sadness is important. Sometimes that helps you honor something that you lost, whether you're grieving a loved one or you are missing something that you used to have in your life. It's okay to be sad, but we also need to recognize when that sadness isn't serving us well. If you're so sad you can't get out of bed or you're so sad that you don't want to talk to people, then you need to take action to say, how do I regulate my emotions a little bit better? And as a society, I don't think we've done a very good job teaching people, how do you cope with uncomfortable emotions? And so many people spend a lot of time uh, numbing themselves, running from uncomfortable feelings, doing anything they can to avoid feeling bad. But the ironic twist is, is that ultimately trying to avoid uncomfortable feelings makes us pretty miserable in the end. And that you can't really enjoy even good times in life unless you've gone through some, some tough emotions too. So it's really important. To know what are your coping strategies? What helps you when you feel these things? And how do you get through them rather than try to go around them. And obviously during the pandemic, most of us have lost our go-to coping strategies. We can't go visit with our friends and we can't see our family as much and maybe we can't go to the gym. And those were all the things maybe that regulated our feelings so we felt okay. And in the absence of those, people are finding that they're reaching for some really unhealthy things. I'm turning to alcohol. I'm eating too much. I'm binge watching TV to the point that I don't get off the couch all weekend. And the things that they're doing now are introducing bigger problems in their lives. And so it's just so important for us to talk more about our emotions, to become more aware of how we're feeling, and then to figure out how do I cope with this emotion if it's not serving me well. So many great points and, and things I wanted to get into. One of the things you said that really resonates with me is this idea that as a society, we really don't teach people how to cope with uncomfortable emotions. And in many ways, this podcast itself sprung from that same desire to, to help people build a toolkit to start to unpack and work through. And even as you touched on a moment ago, acknowledge what your emotions are and, and how to channel them and accept them and deal with them appropriately. Yeah, that's just it. It's so tempting when we say to other people like, oh, don't worry about it, or it'll all work out in the end. Like We're uncomfortable when other people are upset too. And I see this with parents that when their kids are sad, they're like, oh, cheer up, honey, or we do something really quickly to cheer them up, or we minimize their feelings and say, oh, nothing bad's going to happen, or you'll be just fine. Don't worry about it. Instead of talking about it, instead of being able to say, no, it's really normal to be scared sometimes. And even if we don't dare in somebody else's emotion, if they're really afraid of something, we shouldn't minimize how they feel. This is real to them, and they feel really afraid, and that's okay. It's not that their feelings are wrong. Sometimes people just need to be validated and to say, yeah, it's okay to feel that way. If you're really anxious about something going on in your work life, who am I to say you shouldn't worry about it or things will turn out well? That makes me feel better for a minute to say that, but ultimately it doesn't make other people feel better. And I think we just don't spend nearly enough time teaching social and emotional skills. In fact, one of the things I do, I'm a college professor at Northeastern University, and I see what happens to a lot of college kids who come in and they just don't have the emotional skills. And I suspect for a lot of them, their parents really took over for them and made sure that they cheered them up, they calmed them down, they managed their anxiety for them. 
And studies will show that this is true. When they ask college kids, were you ready for college? About 90% of them say that they were academically prepared. But 60% of them say, yeah, but I wasn't emotionally prepared. I don't know how to deal with loneliness. I don't know how to deal with anxiety. I don't know how to deal with a test grade because parents aren't here to do it for me anymore. So I think it's huge that we start implementing more strategies to teach people how do you deal with emotions to normalize it, that it's okay to be sad and that crying isn't a sign of weakness. It takes a lot of a lot of courage to express your emotions and how do you express them in a healthy way and then how do you cope with them when when you're struggling? And and a dovetail of that that you touched on earlier, which I thought was really insightful, is this idea that a lot of times we think about emotional intelligence maybe focusing around how do I influence or read other people and their emotions? But really, the work in, in, in a big way starts with yourself. It's almost like the notion of putting your own oxygen mask on before you start to decipher and help someone else through their emotions. If you can't label and, and work through your own, you're, you're coming from a pretty tough spot. Yeah, I think we make a lot of assumptions that are true. You know, right down to if somebody doesn't text you back, you think they might be mad at me or they don't like me. Well, maybe they're just busy. But we take it to that degree that we try to connect a lot of the dots. And when we do, we make assumptions about how the other person's feeling. And I think that does more harm than good when we assume this person didn't reply to me because they aren't interested. Or when they told me that story, they look like they were sad. So therefore, they must not have wanted me to know that information. I don't know. We connect lots of dots that aren't necessarily true. But rather than ask, we just avoid it or we kind of sugarcoat it or we make the assumption and then move forward in a way that isn't always helpful. So I think sometimes it's good to just ask yourself, well, what's an alternative? What might be another feeling that person had? What other thing might have been driving that behavior that you saw? If somebody's grouched towards you in the morning, you get to work, it doesn't mean that they're mad at you or that you did anything wrong. Maybe they had a fight with their spouse before they left the house. You don't know. But so often we, because we talk so much about emotional intelligence in a way that it's something that we all have to have in order to, to succeed, but yet a lot of people make assumptions about how other people are feeling that aren't correct, but they go through life believing that they're emotionally intelligent because they are connecting some dots that maybe aren't even true. Such a great insight. And it's funny, I almost look at it from the perspective of a mirror and, and many people's interactions with you are often just a mirror of their own experiences. And, and, and I, you know, I've seen it where being in the podcasting world, and you may have encountered this too, I'll send an email to thousands of people and the responses I can get are polar opposites. And it's the same email that I'm holding up, but it's just reflecting back whatever their emotional state is. Oh, I'm glad that you said that. There's, I talk about it in, in my books. There's research on that. When they ask people to describe someone else, more often than not, people who are critical are just describing how they feel about themselves. So when they ask those people five years later to describe a completely different person, like, hey, what do you think about your neighbor? They come up with almost the exact same answer as they did five years ago when describing the neighbor that they lived next door to back then. That's really funny. Right? And then when they ask people, like, how do you feel about yourself? I mean, it's almost word for word sometimes deep down when people get to the nitty gritty of if I don't like myself or if I call other people stupid, if I call other people, I don't know, whatever names they call people or they think that person's a jerk, they're mean usually a more of a reflection of how they feel about themselves rather than how they actually see other people. So interesting. And so one of the other things you touched on earlier that, that I thought was a great insight was this idea that I've looked a lot at how do we, how do we channel so-called negative emotions, things like anger, fear, sadness, et cetera, 
into something that's more productive. But I haven't looked as much at the downside of so-called positive emotions like exuberance, excitement, et cetera. The analogy or the example you used earlier, I thought was a great way of seeing how really any emotion can be a double-edged sword. Yeah, I love to look at the the research behind the emotions and the decisions that we make because I find it absolutely fascinating. So when you're sad, never negotiate. Because what happens is when you're feeling sad, let's say you ask your boss for a raise when you're really sad, your boss makes maybe makes you an offer. You're not going to make a counter offer because you think, oh, my self-esteem can't take it. I can't handle one more blow to my ego right now. So you'll accept a, a probably a pretty raw deal as compared to when you're happy or we're really bad at compartmentalizing our anxiety. So if you're anxious about something, maybe you're anxious about something in your personal life, like you are awaiting uh, test results for a health issue or somebody in your family is dealing with something and you're anxious, then you go to work and your boss says, hey, do you want to take on this new project? You're much more likely to say no because you can't figure out that your anxiety has spilled over into a different area of your life. We kind of lump it all together and we think, I can't handle this or it won't go well. And it affects the way that we think. So it's so important, again, if we just go back to labeling your emotions and then assessing how might this affect the choices I make today. If I'm sad, then I'm probably going to uh, not really jump into a conversation or express the opinion. Or when I'm anxious, I'm going to say no to things that probably aren't even risky. And just being more aware of that can help us make better choices. Yeah, that's so interesting. And, and I also look at things like anger, right? Like anger can be, if you if you can learn how to temper it a little bit, can be a really powerful piece of fuel to, you know, if I'm in a bad mood, I can almost channel it into going and organizing something or cleaning up or, or taking action on something that I hadn't taken action on in a long time. I can almost like use that frustration and channel it into executing on something that otherwise was kind of sitting there and not being done. Yes, anger does give us energy. And sometimes it gives us courage in a good way. So you might stand up for someone or a cause that you believe in or angry sometimes because you just feel a little bit better. You get that, that initial rush. But obviously, there's other times when our anger can become quite unproductive when we start pacing or we're so angry we can't think straight. There's research that shows that if we were to take an IQ test when we were angry, we'd score a lot lower than when we're calm that our intelligence actually goes down as our anger goes up. And that's why we say things and we do things when we're really angry that we wouldn't normally say or do. And our brains store all of our angry memories sort of in the same place. So that's why couples are arguing and one gets angry, they might bring up 101 other instances where they've been angry with that person. They bring up all the other mistakes the other person made or the times when their feelings were hurt because you activated that part of your brain and that's all you can think about is all the reasons why you're still angry at this person. And so there's so many things that make our emotions interesting, yet we never talk about them. Nobody ever really teaches us how to recognize our emotions and how our emotions affect the way we think and the way we behave. And that's vital for us to have this information so that we can function and become our best. It's amazing to me that th this stuff isn't taught in school, but by and large, it's not uh, a core curriculum. I mean, this should be stuff that we're teaching people in high school or even earlier than that. And and that's why I think it's so exciting that you you started to create works for children or, or, or younger adults to start to really learn some of these important lessons. One thing that I was curious about is, and, and this is I say this as a parent as well, when should we start to to 
teach these lessons to our kids? So I think we can start pretty much right away that we can teach preschoolers a lot about feelings right from the beginning. And so with preschoolers, the big thing you want to start instilling in them is that there's a big difference between the way that they feel and the way that they behave so that they know it's okay to feel angry, but it's not okay to hit. It's not okay to kick my brother because I'm mad. But so often we tell them like, no, don't hit or don't do that or stop crying. And they don't know the difference between that it's okay to be mad, but it's not okay to hit. And so when we start explaining to them that angry feelings are okay, it's just what you do with your anger that matters, or it's okay to be sad, but here's what you can do when you feel sad. You can't scream in the middle of the grocery store and cry and throw yourself on the floor because that's not fair to other people. But it's okay to cry, but you just can't make disrupt the entire room full of people. Here's, here are the options instead. And when we start to teach kids that, it makes a big difference. And when kids start to learn those, their vocabulary words for feelings, it makes a huge difference in how they behave too. A kid who can say, I'm mad, won't feel like he has to show you how angry he is by ripping everything up. Or a kid who can say, I'm sad, isn't going to have to feel like they have to throw themselves on the floor because you said no, that they couldn't eat more candy. And so as soon as we start teaching them those feeling words and we start explaining the differences between the way you feel and the way you behave puts them on a, a pretty good path. And then as they grow older, we can start incorporating more stuff about the way that they think so that kids know that their brain will trick them sometimes. It will lie to them. It will say, you can't do that or everyone's going to laugh at you or don't bother trying or you're not good enough. And as parents, we're usually really quick to say, no, that's not true or you'll be just fine. But we don't teach them how to how to talk themselves into realizing that it's okay to self-doubt sometimes, but you don't have to believe it. And so there's lots of strategies we can use. For example, just when your kid says, I don't want to go to school tomorrow because I have to give a speech and everybody's going to laugh at me. It's a great opportunity to say, what would you say to your friend who said that to you? Your kid isn't going to say to their friend, oh yeah, skip school tomorrow, you loser, because we're all going to laugh at you. They'd probably say something really nice, like you'll do a good job, just do your best, or I know you can do well. And then we teach them to start saying those things to themselves. And then they have a skill that they can use when we're not around and we're not right there coaching them all the time. So that when they have negative thoughts and they're either at a friend's house, they're away from home, or even when they go to college someday, they know how to talk themselves down when they start to get worked up into a frenzy. I love that idea of teaching them skills they can carry with themselves and, and have those tools to be able to use but you, you touched on something a minute ago that I, that I want to almost zoom out for a moment and, and dig into a little bit, which is the thinking side of, of mental toughness. We talked a lot about emotions. Tell me a little bit more about the thinking side before we dive back into how we can really practically apply this to, to, to teaching children. Sure. So when it comes to thinking, a lot of people assume that it's about being positive all the time, that you should always assume that you're going to win and that you should assume that nothing's ever going to hurt you and that you can do all things and be all things to all people. But obviously, that's not healthy all the time. It's much healthier to think, yeah, I can ask for help. I can acknowledge that I have some weaknesses. It's okay if I don't win because I'll be fine emotionally if I come in third place. And for us to not be afraid of self-doubt, so often people will think, well, if I have any self-doubt at all, I shouldn't, I shouldn't try something new. Or people will say, I can't do anything different because I lack confidence. Well, how do you get confidence? It's by doing, by putting yourself out there. So sometimes we say, 
you're not going to really think your way into confidence because thinking, yeah, I'm, I'm really good. I'm a great person unless you believe it. So sometimes you have to, to take action so that you can reinforce those thoughts and figure out when your brain doubts you, the best way to prove it wrong is to go out there and do exactly what your brain says that you can't do. And our brains tend to underestimate us and it will see us as not good enough. It will try to tell you that you shouldn't try anything new. It really wants us to stay really deep into our comfort zones. And again, the emotions that you have affect the way you think. So when you're sad, you'll think really sad, negative thoughts. When you're anxious, you'll predict all the worst case scenarios. And it's important to just be able to realize just because you think it doesn't make it true that your brain does lie to you. It's inaccurate sometimes. And going back to just being able to identify your feelings and then figuring out, well, how true is this thought? And there's a lot of different exercises for people to start learning how to recognize their irrational thoughts and then replacing them with something more realistic. And that same exercise that works for kids works for grownups too, where you can say, what would I say to my friend who had this problem? Because so often we, for some reason, think that being really hard on ourselves will motivate us to do better. When we mess up, we call ourselves names or we talk ourselves out of doing things because we think we can't handle it. But Research will show that self-compassion is really the key to performing better, to recovering from mistakes, and to just feeling your best in life. So ask yourself, what would I say to my friend who had this problem? Or what would I say to a friend who was struggling with this thing? And when you start replacing a lot of the negative thoughts that you have with more self-compassionate inner dialogue, it can really change the course of your life. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career? Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Self-compassion is, is so vital. And I, I love what you said a minute ago about this, this notion that your brain can lie to you, right? And that your brain, in many cases, will, will lie to you to keep you as, as boxed into your comfort zone as possible. It's such an important insight. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah. So your brain will tell you again, like, oh, don't try for that new job because it might not go well. Or there's no guarantee it's going to be better. So you should just keep doing this. And it wants to keep us in whatever emotional state we're in. So when you think about it, well, what do you do when you're sad? Maybe you sit on the couch and you binge watch TV. But what do you do when you're happy? Maybe you listen to loud music, you call a friend, you do stuff around the house, maybe you go outside. It affects your behavior, but again, it also affects your brain. Your brain will tell you when you're sad to just stay stuck inside, to not go do anything fun. And it will tell you it's not going to work anyway. And when I work with people who have depression, for example, they're convinced that therapy is not going to help, that medication couldn't possibly be helpful. 
that nothing's going to work and that they're going to stay stuck like that forever. And that's really the depression talking, convincing them of that. Or when I mean with people with anxiety, they're convinced that everything that possibly could go bad will. So if there's a one in a hundred chance that something bad might happen, they're convinced that it's probably a hundred percent going to happen and it's going to happen to them because the anxiety tends to cause their brains to think that way. So when we get a better handle on our emotions, it's, it becomes much easier to figure out, yeah, well, this is just the, the anxiety talking, or this is just my sadness trying to convince me to stay stuck in a bad mood. And sometimes it's about arguing the opposite when you think, well, this isn't going to work out. I'm going to embarrass myself. We'll argue the opposite. Maybe it will turn out better than you might think. Or when you do something and you come to a conclusion like, that person didn't answer my email because they're not interested. Well, that's one possibility, but it also might be that they're busy or maybe they didn't read the email yet, or maybe they are going to respond. They just didn't respond today. There's a lot of different reasons why, but yet we just need to open up our minds to the idea that the one conclusion that we draw isn't the only potential outcome. And when you start realizing that and figuring out, okay, this is my brain's desire to try to make me stay stuck in whatever state I'm in now, it just becomes easier to say, I'm going to face some fears. I'm going to do some things I think I couldn't do. And you can literally train your brain. You can uh, change, physically alter your brain. Things like uh, gratitude can change your brain and things like meditation, we know, creates physical changes in the brain. But you can also do that just by proving yourself wrong. So I'm a runner, for example, and my brain will tell me never fail. I don't, I don't run far. I just run one mile a day and I run as fast as I possibly can. And I spend most of my life trying to break the record of how fast I, I run and try to say if I can just run a little faster today than I did yesterday, but never fail about the three quarter mile mark. My brain tells me I'm too tired. I have to quit. I shouldn't keep going. I can't possibly take another step at this pace. But I know that it's not true. It's just because I'm tired and my brain wants me to quit because that would be the comfortable thing to do. So as soon as I start to think that, just to prove my brain wrong, I try to run a little bit faster. And it's like over time, I can say, all right, now my brain is starting to realize I'm going to try to trick you. I'm still going to try to tell you to quit. But that voice has gotten a lot quieter over it's been about a year and three months now that I've been trying to break this record. But, but just recognizing that and knowing, okay, as long as I don't listen to that little voice in my head, it gets a lot quieter over time. And to just be more aware that your brain will try to trick you. It will try to tell you not to do hard things. It will try to talk you out of tackling challenges that are uncomfortable because it really wants you to stay comfortable in life. Great story and, 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 and a really compelling insight. So let's, I want to bring it back now to making this more practical and talking about how we can start to implement some of these ideas for our children. One of the things you, you mentioned, which I think is really important, is this idea of teaching children an emotional vocabulary and, and how to label their own emotions. Tell me a little bit more about how we do that. So if you have young children, you just start to say something to the effect of, oh, it looks like you're really angry right now when your kid has a tantrum. And they pick up on that. And to use the feeling words more in everyday conversation, like, oh, it looks like you're sad right now. I'd be sad too. Or to express our own emotions. I'm really happy today because the sun's shining, whatever it is. Just by using it more in everyday conversations. And we read books and talk more about feelings and other people's feelings. And another fun one is to ask kids how somebody else felt. So if you have a kid who gets in a, hits her brother, for example, and the brother starts crying, you can ask your daughter, well, how do you think he felt when you, when you hit him? And she might say he felt sad. 
Well, then ask her to make a face. Show me how you think you felt with your face. And when kids then make a sad face, they actually feel kind of sad for a second. So it gives them a whole level of empathy for their sibling or somebody that they just hurt and helps them recognize, oh, yeah, that doesn't feel good. And so I always encourage parents, have your kids make a face. Tell them to show you with their face how somebody else feels. That's a really good way to get them to become more aware of that. Yeah, I don't just have feelings, but everybody else does too. And then with older kids, again, it's just important to just keep incorporating bigger and more complicated feeling words into conversations like disappointed and embarrassed. And you might even keep a list of feeling words on the, on the refrigerator or have a chart somewhere so that kids can really identify different ways of feeling. And if you have a kid that really isn't into talking about feelings, if you have a, a child that isn't going to say, yeah, I'm sad today. Another thing you could do is just use a feelings thermometer. So from zero to 10, how are you feeling today? And that same kid might be able to say, well, I'm a three right now. And then your goal might be to say, well, how can we make you at least a five? And maybe you have some strategies, some skills, things like that, so that they know that they can pull themselves out of a bad mood when they're feeling kind of stuck. And I think the more that we do those things and that we just normalize that it's okay to feel down. We all have days when we feel bad. Sometimes we know why. Sometimes we don't know why. We just wake up feeling that way and that's okay. And to then have those conversations with kids about is the way you're feeling right now, a friend or an enemy, and they just hit something because they were angry. Well, now your emotions are an enemy. And for us to not take responsibility for how they feel. So if you have a kid who uh, struggles with their emotions, then brainstorm with them. Gee, when you're really sad, what kinds of things might help? Well, you could try coloring a picture. You could try going outside. You could try doing 10 push-ups. Come up with a whole list of things that your kid could try. Maybe write it down. And then when they're kind of sad someday, it's up to them to go try to pick something off the list. Or if you have a kid that gets upset or they're easily frustrated, you might create a calm down kit. It could be a shoebox filled with strategies that engage their senses. There might be some silly putty in there, or coloring book, or maybe some pictures or a joke book. Anything that might help your child calm down a little bit. And then when they start to get upset, you might just encourage them, maybe it's a good time to go get your calm down kit. And then they take responsibility to say, what can I do right now so that I can calm myself down before I get into trouble so that I don't end up doing something that hurts somebody else or I don't destroy property or I don't say something mean that hurts somebody's feelings. And then again, we have teach kids to walk away with a toolbox of skills and strategies that they know, okay, when I'm upset, it's my job to calm myself down. The concept of the emotional thermometer is something that's really interesting and, and something that I've been thinking about recently. Even as adults, I feel like when we encounter somebody or we have a conversation with a, whether it's an acquaintance, a friend, whatever, we run into each other, we say, hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Right? It's always, whenever we have these interactions, you immediately just throw a bunch of somewhat positive words out into the conversation and then that's it and then everybody kind of moves on how do we really even even as adults and teaching this to children actually break through that that surface level veneer and start to really pinpoint where we are on our emotional thermometer and how to share it with others yeah that's such an important thing because we do get into that surface level conversation as you say and even they ask you, how are things going? Great. How's work? Good. And we just struggle to get past that initial barrier. And obviously in the middle of the grocery store, when you run into an acquaintance, you might not want to dive into 
your life's history, but we do want to have those people in our lives that we can take it to the next level with our, whether it's friends or family. And when we're talking to people and we want to know how they're doing, like how they're really doing, sometimes it's helpful to, to acknowledge how you're doing first. And if you say, Hey, how are you? Obviously you're probably going to get the stock answer of good. How are you? But then you can revisit it later in the conversation. And it's easier to talk about when you kind of externalize it. When you say to somebody, how are you feeling lately? They're probably still going to say, good, why? How are you? But if you can say something like, how's your stress level lately? People might say, oh, it's pretty bad. Even the same person that just said that they're doing great in life. When you say, how's your stress level? Something about that makes it a little easier to acknowledge, gee, I've been having trouble sleeping lately or... I've had so much work, I can't possibly relax. It opens the door. And it's helpful sometimes too, when we start by talking about our own stress level. And if you say, ah, I've been really stressed lately. How about you? Have you been feeling it? And if we're concerned about somebody else's mental health too, it's important to, to address it, to say, gee, you don't quite seem yourself lately. How, how are you doing really? Um, and it might open the door for them to talk a little bit. And if you want to open the door for yourself because you're struggling, you know, just don't be afraid to bring it up. In the middle of a conversation, you might just pause and say, hey, I, I got to tell you, I'm actually kind of struggling lately. I know I said I was just good earlier, but here's some things that are going on for me. And more often than not, when you open that door, other people are more, more than willing to listen. And then they'll also share some of their struggles too. And once you get past that initial barrier of, yeah, I'm doing great, it seems like then people know that it's okay to talk about it. But again, as a society, it's a, we're kind of in this weird place, especially during the pandemic where so many people are struggling yet. And we're all kind of in the same situation in terms of our mental health. It seems to be mental health is on the decline. Study after study is showing us that we're struggling more than ever. Yet we still struggle to talk about it with each other quite often. People will say, yeah, I'm doing good or I'm just staying home a lot. There's nothing really going on or nothing to talk about lately. But people are really sad. People are struggling with anxiety. And it's really important that we open the door and make it known that it's okay to have those conversations. And that's uh, mental health is a continuum. And on any given day, we might fall in a slightly different place on that continuum. And that's okay. And it's not a sign of weakness. I talk so much about mental strength. And sometimes people think that if they're struggling with depression, or they have anxiety, or they're just really stressed out, that it means that they're weak, or they're not good enough. But that's not true at all. That mental strength and mental health are two different things. Just like physical strength and physical health aren't the same. You can go to the gym and lift weights to become physically strong, but you might still develop a health problem like high blood pressure or you might break your ankle someday. But that doesn't mean that, that you didn't still have strong muscles. And mental strength is the same. And to know that talking about it, acknowledging it is a sign of strength. It's definitely not a sign of weakness. Such a, another great insight. And I love that analogy of... of how physical health versus physical fitness may not be the exact same thing. It holds true just as well for mental strength. And that really comes back to what we touched on earlier, which is this notion of, of it's not something that we teach most people, but if we can, if we can start with our own children to build this toolkit of emotional tools that they can carry with themselves and that they can improve and build on over time, it, it's something that's a tremendous gift. It really is. I think it can definitely change the course of kids' lives and they'll feel empowered to reach their greatest potential, whatever their goals are in life, to know, yeah, I at least have the emotional skills to get there, as opposed to just being really good in school or to have certain talents in life. That's great. But 
unless you have the emotional tools that you need to to really get you through the tough times or to bounce back from failure, it's tough to make it. So what are a couple of the, we touched on a few of these already, but what are a few other tools that we can start to to add to the toolkit for our kids? If I had to pick another big one, in terms of helping kids think more realistically and being kinder to themselves, is to just teach them to write a kind letter to themselves. And it might only be a few sentences. And maybe it just says, dear, whatever their name is, I know that you're struggling in life, yet you're a really good kid. You're a nice person. And I know that life's going to be hard sometimes, but you can make it. Something kind of like that, but it's going to be their own letter to themselves in their own words. But you have them write that letter and then keep it somewhere safe, whether that means they keep it in their in their nightstand or they carry it around in their backpack. But then when they're having a bad day, have them take out that letter and read it to themselves. And since it's their own words, again, they learn how to reassure themselves, how to give themselves confidence when they're feeling bad or how to get through tough times. So that maybe when a friend's being mean to them, they know, well, I can still be nice to myself and I have this. And it's a wonderful gift to have kids do that. And then I've had kids that have done that when they were younger and they've gone on. And even as college students or young adults, they're, they're still doing it because they find it to be so helpful because when they are having a bad day and they need that voice to tell them, nope, you're okay, they have that with them. So that's one really simple but effective thing that parents can do. And another one is to just work on gratitude with kids. And we don't want to force gratitude to tell kids they have to be grateful for everything that they have. But by creating some gratitude rituals around the house, maybe you decide that at bedtime, you're just going to say what you're thankful for. Or maybe you have a gratitude jar at home and everybody just drops a slip of paper in every once in a while. And then you read them all once a month or something like that. But it's a wonderful way to help kids see that that there are good things going on in the world, even though we might not talk about them that much, that the news isn't always positive or it's easy to complain about our day. But when we have something like that, it really trains our brains to say, okay, how do I remember that even when I'm going through tough times, I still have more than I deserve and there's still good things going on and I still have gifts that I can give to other people. I love the idea of the gratitude jar. That's definitely something that we'll probably implement in our house once, once my kids are a little bit older. There, there's a couple other themes, and, and in many ways, to me, 13 Things Strong Kids Do is almost the, the inverse side of the coin from, from 13 Things Mentally Strong Parents Do. And there were a few themes from that book in particular that I thought were tremendously powerful and really defied a lot of conventional wisdom around parenting. One of them to me, which I'd love to hear your thoughts on, was the notion of not shielding your children from pain. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. As a therapist, I've worked with a lot of kids whose parents have gone to great lengths to to shield them from the realities of life. And while we definitely don't want to just throw kids out there to toughen them up, they don't need to know about certain adult problems or things that are above them in their maturity level. On the other hand, we do need to let them face challenges and we do need to let them experience pain sometimes. And you want to do that when they're under your roof. And as hard as it is as a parent to watch your child be in pain, the truth is you don't want them to experience that for the first time when they're 20 years old and they've moved away from home. When they experience that at home, whether they get rejected by somebody at school or they get they don't make the team or they're struggling a lot with a certain subject in school, it's an opportunity to say, how do you deal with these uncomfortable emotions? How can you manage this in a, in a healthy way? 
And those are those teachable moments where we can say, rather than take this pain away from you, I'm going to teach you how to deal with it and cope with it in a healthy way. And I know how tough that is. I know how uncomfortable it is as parents. And so many parents feel like, oh, if my kid isn't happy all the time, then somehow it's a reflection of me that I'm not a good enough parent. But the truth is that kids need to go through tough times as a way to learn and grow. And it's our job to make sure that we're guiding them rather than always protecting them from painful experiences. I really like that distinction between guiding them and and protecting them. And a a corollary of, of the idea of not shielding them from pain, which I thought was really insightful, was also the notion of don't prevent your children from making mistakes. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, that's another tough one. And in today's world, it's especially tough. Back in the day, I think when I was a kid, probably everybody forgot their homework sometimes or they forgot their soccer cleats sometimes. So it wasn't a big deal. But now so many parents are so quick to make sure that their kids' homework gets checked or they even hire a tutor for their kids to make sure that they're getting 100s. So then when your kid forgets their homework, you might think, oh, I don't want to let them fall far behind. And I talk to a lot of parents who feel that pressure of if I let my kid fail a test, even if it's just one test or I let them forget their homework once, they're not going to get into that Ivy League college and their life will be ruined. And they walk around with this incredible pressure to make sure that they prop their kids up at all times. But the problem is kids then don't learn. How do you make mistakes and how do you rebound from mistakes? And that's a much more vital skill in life that they're going to need, whether they make it to an Ivy League college or not. And kids who don't gain those skills, actually, it's not that they grow up to never make a mistake. It's that they become really good at hiding their mistakes. And so we need to know, okay, when you make a mistake, it's okay to own it. And then how do you respond to the mistake rather than how do you cover it up or how do you prevent them from making mistakes at any time? You know, it's funny. I was the the youngest of four. And one of the greatest gifts that I think my parents gave me was that they never bailed me out homework, for example, they wouldn't even ask me. They had no idea what my homework was, if it was done, if it wasn't done. If I didn't do it, that was my issue to deal with. And and I feel like that really taught me a lot and gave me a sense of both ownership and responsibility for, for taking control over my own life in many ways. Yeah, I can imagine. I think there's so many parents that feel like it's their job to make sure that their kids always do everything, whether it's that they always have everything packed for the, the soccer game tomorrow and that they have every subject completed at all times. And they take on so much responsibility that I'm seeing them act more like they're their child's business manager, or personal concierge, rather than a parent who's in charge. And your kids just aren't gaining those really vital life skills as a result. So how do we, as parents, not give our children power over us in, in that sense of not only being a concierge, but, but more broadly as well. Yeah, this is another one that I see quite often in the therapy office from well-intentioned parents who wanted to make sure that their kids were heard at home. And, you know, we used to have say TV shows like Father Knows Best. And back in those days, kids were to be seen and not heard. And then the pendulum, I think, swung a little too far the other way, where we started giving kids way too much power in voting of should we move? Should mom or dad take this new job? What do you want to eat for dinner tonight? To the point that kids were making a lot of really adult decisions. And parents are thinking, well, I'm making sure that they know that their opinion matters. But really, they're instilling anxiety in their kids. Kids know I don't have the skills and the tools to make really good life decisions. I'm hoping my parents have those skills because I know I don't. And when their parents are asking for their, not just their input, but they're giving kids an equal vote, 
kids start to doubt, gee, do mom or dad really know what they're talking about? If they are willing to let me have an equal vote in this, then clearly they don't have any more knowledge or skills than I do. And ultimately it backfires. So it's important to empower your kids to know that, okay, they can speak up for themselves. They can advocate. They can take the steps they need to solve problems. But you don't want them making important family decisions or you don't want them to think that they always have an equal vote in everything. It's important to have that hierarchy so that kids know you're in charge. And while you may ask for their opinion, ultimately, it's your decision. And you're going to make that decision based on your knowledge and your years of wisdom that they just don't have yet. I love that insight. And it, it definitely flies in the face of a lot of the conventional parenting wisdom out there. But it, it makes total sense. Yeah, I have to say, I can't tell you how many people have come into my therapy office and I uh, had a mom who, who stopped dating because her 10-year-old didn't want her to date anymore. And so she quit dating because she said, oh, he doesn't want me to. And it was almost like she'd then made him like a, a parental figure of hers or like a, a strange sort of like partnership where he got to make those choices. Or I've had other parents who had job opportunities in other places in the country, but they said, you know, my eight-year-old doesn't want to move, so we're not going to. And for them to know that they were then teaching their kids some really bad habits like moving would be uncomfortable and we can't make you uncomfortable. So we're going to stay here. And, you know, not to say there aren't valid times when maybe you decide uh, to make life decisions based on, on your kids. Maybe you decide, I don't want to uproot them, but that shouldn't be because your eight-year-old told you not to, or because your 10-year-old insists that, that that would be unfair. It should be because that's what you've decided based on what you know about life. It, it sounds almost comical when you, when you think about your life being dictated by an eight-year-old, but it's in those moments, it's hard to, to make those decisions. How do we, as parents, build the mental toughness to, to really be tough in those spots? So it goes back to knowing that rather than shielding your kids, you want to teach them, you don't want them to think I'm too fragile to handle this. Instead, you want them to know that you believe they're a strong kid and that even though this isn't what they wanted, that they can handle it anyway. So if you're going to move, you're going to do something different, you're refusing, even right down to when your kid says, I'm not eating that for dinner, and you could choose to make different meals for everybody in the family, or you can say you can eat it if you're hungry. And if not, that's okay, you don't have to eat it. But just making those decisions and knowing, all right, my kid's going to be a little uncomfortable, that's painful for me to watch, but you don't want to make choices out of that are just the most comfortable for you in the moment either. You want to know what life skills am I teaching them right now? And if you can just, as you say, zoom out and say, what skills do I want them to learn from this situation? And how do I teach them those skills? And how is this going to serve them in life? That's much more important than those little moments really matter uh, when we say yes or no to something or how we respond to them and the messages that we're sending them about uh, how to deal with their own uncomfortable emotions. I really like the frame of approaching that as a, a methodology or framework across a couple of the different things we just talked about, all for building the the tolerance of discomfort. As we said earlier, getting out of your comfort zone is is such a vital and important thing. And when you frame it in the context of helping your children develop the ability to tolerate discomfort and to wrestle with uncomfortable feelings, emotions, situations, suddenly it puts it in a really powerful frame shift that that's, that's a really vital thing to be teaching them. Yeah, I'm glad that it does because I think if we're going to serve our kids well in life, that's one of the most important skills and tools that we can give them is that they then have confidence to know, yeah, this is uncomfortable, but I can handle it. Too often kids say, I can't stand it. And then we bail them out. We 
kind of leave their brains when they say, I can't do this anymore. And we give them an immediate out. But for us to know, no, they can persist at things. They can do things that are tough. They can face some of their fears. And our job is, again, it goes back to guiding them rather than sparing them from those tough things. So for somebody who's been listening to this conversation and and wants to concretely implement one of the themes or ideas that we've talked about today, what would be one action item that you would give them to start taking action on this? I would say the biggest thing would be to start incorporating feeling words into your everyday conversation and to maybe check in with yourself a couple times a day. Maybe you decide you're going to pair it with something else so you remember. Maybe when you brush your teeth and hopefully you brush your teeth in the morning and at night, when you brush your teeth every day, you're just going to take that two minutes while you're brushing your teeth and think, oh, how am I feeling right now? And how might that be affecting my day? Or maybe it's when you eat a meal, you take a moment and just say, okay, how am I feeling right now? And for families to, to just incorporate more feeling words in everyday conversation and to just get more comfortable with recognizing emotions and labeling them and getting more comfortable with realizing how your emotions affect your decisions. And for listeners who want to dig in, find out more about you and, and your work and your books online, what is the best place for them to do that? So my website is the best place, which is Amy Morin, LCSW, as in licensed clinical social worker.com. And you can find information on my books, my TEDx talk and link to my podcast, which is called the Very Well Mind Podcast. Well, Amy, thank you so much for coming on the show, for sharing some very insightful wisdom about children, about our emotions broadly, and how we can all cultivate mental strength. Well, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created this show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or If you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success.
can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.